Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. We're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And today we're broadcasting from Mountain View in Silicon Valley. It's rather pretty up here. It's, um, you know, it's a way if all businesses, all businesses could operate like they do up in Silicon Valley with lush gardens and all sorts of fantastic amenities for staff, the world would be a great place. Now, this program's about helping entrepreneurs and, in fact, everybody that's in business to be more successful. We've been bringing you the latest of information, terrific advice from people that have done it before, and great interviews now for four years to help you maximize your own success. Had a terrific response last week to my story about the head transplant um, that's taking place shortly with the Norwegian doctors and his team of 150 people working with him, doctors and nurses, etc. In case you missed it, a guy with a degenerative disease destroying his body is undergoing a head transplant, the world's first, where his head will be transplanted onto a perfectly healthy body. The operation is estimated to take 36 hours and cost $11 million. They are quietly hopeful, but uh, I wouldn't be putting too much money on it. But most people thought I was joking, but I'm not. It's absolutely for real, and I'll keep you posted. The Bob Pritchard Radio Show is all about celebrating entrepreneurs. And during the week, I heard about an eight-year-old girl who makes $127,000 a month making baking videos on YouTube. That's $1.5 million a year or $4,000 a day. And she is eight years old. That's fantastic. I love it. So if, you, if you're a parent, have a look at your eight-year-old. And if you're still shelling out for them, tell them to smarten their act. He's an eight-year-old making $4,000 a day. Now, the YouTube stars are, are getting as big as Hollywood celebrities now. You know, when they make public appearances, they, they get massive crowds. I think I told you recently about um, a YouTube star who... Um, was in Oxford Street, I think, in London, and closed down the street. And the very next day, Beckham was there and got about 800 people. So it's really changed. AdAge recently published a ranking of the top YouTube stars, according to their monthly earnings, in two genres, beauty and style and food and cooking. The top earner in the food and cooking genre is Charlie's Crafty Kitchen which features videos of eight-year-old Charlie who shares baking tips. So that $127,000 a month that she makes is after 
taking out YouTube's cut of the revenue. And Charlie's channel gets 29 million views each month. <laughs> Charlie began making videos in 2012 when she was six. And her five-year-old sister, Ashley, is the chief taste tester. The two girls have made tutorials for everything from Minnie Mouse Oreo Pops to Jelly Popsicles inspired by Frozen. Excuse the pun, but $1.5 million a year for an eight-year-old is one hell of a lot of dough. <laughs> While we're on the subject of entrepreneurs, let me tell you about a 21-year-old who dropped out of college last year to start a business that's on track to earn a million dollars in 2015. Now, this is getting to be a more and more common scenario with kids that drop out of college and make a very healthy living. In fact, many of them make a staggering living as dropouts. Does this remind anybody of uh, Facebook or Twitter or any of the others where the entrepreneurs were dropouts? In 2013, Chandler Bolt decided he was going to drop out of college. He was a sophomore at the College of Charleston, juggling classes, doing an internship, and after years of starting and profiting from you know, very small businesses, he set up a series of businesses, made a little bit of money here and there. He had a burning desire to go out and do his own thing. So he thought, thought about, well, graduating early. But then he realised he really didn't want to do that increased workload. So with his scholarships and paying um, tuition, it would have cost him $7,000 plus living expenses to finish the next two years of college. But he looked at the opportunity cost and he said, mm, I'm not worried about what it would cost to finish, but what could I possibly be losing or what could I accomplish in these two years rather than be at college? What else could he be doing? So while interning with a work experience company called Student Painters and attending classes, he co-authored and self-published a book on time management in November 2013. The book was called The Productive Person, just based on his own insights from working and studying in his teens. The first month after self-publishing, it brought in $7,000 that he split with his business partner. And the book continually earned between $2,000 and $5,000 a month. So one day he's, um, a friend of his said, is this book making you any money? And he said that um, he spent all day yesterday snowboarding. And despite that, he made 400 bucks. He immediately stood the ma he immediately got a grip on the magic of passive income. In fact, when he dropped out of college, it was the income from the book that kept him afloat. So Bolt moved to Iowa to live in a house with a handful of other entrepreneurs. After six months there, he headed off to San Diego. He went there to learn from guys who were a lot smarter than he was. Now, that's a great attitude because if you mix with people that are dumber than you, you'll never get smarter. If you employ people dumber than you, the business will never get better. 
So now he's building a company called Self Publishing School, which provides guidance and resources for authors to get their books from idea to shelf in three months and only spending an hour a day doing it. So authors can pay $1,000 for lifetime access to the materials or $3,000 for personalized weekly coaching. About 170 people have come into the program so far and 12,000 additional people receive messages through the company's email list and, of course, self-publishing school also brings in money through the list and affiliate marketing. So when self-publishing school first launched last year, it brought in $86,000. This year, it's on track to generate well over $1 million. Well, good on you. Gentlemen, that was, that's fantastic. What a great thing. And uh, boy's obviously smart. His trouble is he's got to keep turning out books. Have you ever wondered why startups like Uber and Airbnb and SpaceX all succeed while hundreds of other startups fail? You ever sort of sat there and thought, what the hell is it? We know that 97% of startups fail. But why is that? So think about what's the most important thing for the success of the project? Is it your team? Is it funding? Is it the idea? Is it timing? Is it having a great business model? Well, let's look at those five success factors. A study of these five components of the 250 companies at Idealab found really interesting results when they looked at it. They look, the factors that they considered were, one, firstly, the idea. You know, how new is it? How different is it? Is there something unique about it? Um, how can I protect it? Secondly, the team and the execution by the team. How good's the team? How experienced are they? How effective are they? How adaptable are they? Thirdly, the business model. Do you have a very clear path to revenues? Have you thought this all the way through and know how you're going to make a buck? Fourthly, the funding. Is it companies that raise a lot of money that are successful and the ones that can't raise the money fail? Maybe that's it. Finally, the timing. Are you getting into the market too early? Just at the right time? Too late? And does it really matter at all anyway? So of the 250 companies, 10 were picked in each category. And five of the companies that turned into billion-dollar companies and five that everybody thought would be billion-dollar companies but actually failed. The question was, which variables accounted more for success? What was the most important factor in the companies that became billion-dollar companies? This surprised me, I must admit. The number one thing that mattered was timing. 
timing accounted for 42% of the successes relative to failures. So 42% of the successes were due to the right timing. Number two, doesn't surprise me, the team and the execution of the idea. Number three was the idea. Number four was the business model. And dead last was funding. Now, most people think, and most people that I speak to think that, well, funding's the be-all and end-all. If you can get the funding, you will be successful. The study found that funding mattered the least because you can make a company succeed even if you don't raise the money. It might take a bit longer. It might be a bit harder. But if you believe in it and it's a great idea, you can do it without the money. Second least important was the business model. The business model ranked last because you can actually start without a business model. Take Facebook and Twitter, for example, both of which launched without a revenue model. And some of the best companies add their business model after they've launched their product and find the fit in the marketplace and maybe pivot a couple of times and then take off. The third least important is the idea because most most ideas have to um, pivot. The market's probably going to change your idea anyway you, and your plan may be good but it's probably going to change. The second most important is your team. You need to surround yourself with the best people who can adapt the product to fit the market. If you don't have a really good complementary team, it's just not going to happen. It's important, but it's not the most important factor. So why did timing come out on top? Well, timing is everything. Sometimes you might have a great idea, but the market just isn't ready for it. And sometimes the timing is just right to launch your business. Take Airbnb as an example. Everybody thinks Airbnb is an incredible business model. I know I do. I use it. I love it. But the Airbnb model had been done many, many times before Airbnb became successful. Did you know that? I didn't either. One of the things that accounted for Airbnb's huge success is that it came out right when the recession hit around the world. People needed extra money badly. People were willing to rent out their rooms or their homes. So, timing. And Airbnb's been a fantastic success. And Airbnb along with Uber and uh, Tesla (laughs) are my three favourite, favourite companies. Now, you're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show Worldwide on Voice America Business. We're here to assist entrepreneurs to become successful. So if you have a question about any aspect of business, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we will answer it on air or we'll email you directly. Make sure you subscribe to my monthly newsletter, which is going out in about probably about 10 days, the May edition to 16,000 business executives in over 60 countries. We've also begun sending out a summary of each week's radio program, and we're getting great feedback for that. 
So thank you. It's really appreciated. After the break, I have Scott Yancey, a great guy who's the co-founder and CEO of CloudWords, the premier cloud-based software company that has revolutionized how businesses manage their global communication and localization processes. I didn't realize quite how important this was until I had a good long chat with Scott. Um, It's really amazing when you're a a company that's doing business in a number of countries. Now, why should Scott succeed? Well, prior to founding CloudWords, Scott was a key architect on salesforce.com. Remember that? (laughs) Remember that. They are massive. And he helped to grow salesforce.com from 2,000 customers to 77,000 customers at $1.5 billion in annual revenue. Scott's a great guy, and I'll be back with him right after this short break. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is the segment of the show where we interview successful entrepreneurs, people who have gone out there and battled the odds. They've overcome the challenges and they've become successful. Now, being successful is really hard, and being a startup is hard. And so, you know, people that succeed, we need to emulate them. We need to listen to how they overcame their challenges and what they did that made them successful. Because if you try to reinvent the wheel, you'll most probably lose. And I'm I'm always saying that surround yourself with mentors. Get people that have been out there that have done it. Because it's amazing how fewer, how many, much fewer mistakes. That's not very good English, but the much fewer mistakes that you will make if you have good mentors around you. As the co-founder and CEO of CloudWords in 2013, Scott Yancey runs the premier cloud-based software company that has revolutionized how businesses manage their global communication and localization processes. You know, today's increasingly connected world, it's a, it's a global 
global business environment today, selling and supporting customers in their local languages often means the difference between success and failure. Yancey developed CloudWords end-to-end software as a service platform to enable companies to deliver on-demand content anywhere on the planet. This enables companies to respond to the market faster, slashes costs, complexity and time associated with localization product projects. Clients include the likes of Twitter, Shazam, Walmart, McDonald's and Verisign. Now prior to f- founding CloudWords, Scott was a key architect on the Salesforce.com platform and applications, and we all know how successful that's been, and his technical leadership and expertise helped grow Salesforce.com from 2,000 customers to 77,000 customers and $1.5 billion in annual revenue. Scott graduated from Santa Clara University in 1999 with a degree in psychology and an emphasis on in neuroscience. Hi Scott, how are you? I'm great, thank you very much for that introduction, I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. You've got degrees in neuroscience, which study of the nervous system I think, and psychology, which is the study of the mind and behaviour. It Mm -hmm. seems like a giant leap from there to designing technology platforms. So are you just brilliantly smart or are you just a natural at technology or... Is there more to the story? Um, well, I guess I'd... Um, Naturally little, smart, little, you're going to say, right? A little ball, yes, exactly. <laughs> you, know, you, you keep me up, I'll, I'll take it, I guess, right? Um, no, I, at, at the end of the day, you know, I think it's... Building technology is not unlike building many other things. You're taking a big, large problem, you're breaking it down into component parts, and you're trying to put it together in the right way, in the right order, and whether that's doing, you know, brain research or neuroscience or, you know, psychology, what have you, or figuring out the right parts of an application to build to help a business user do their lives daily better. There's many similarities there. Yeah, to a large degree, college simply teaches you to think, doesn't it? It doesn't really matter what you do. Exactly. It teaches you to think. Um, so what are the needs um, to engage with global markets? What, what does a corporation need? So, you know, there's kind of three basic things that we talk to when we talk to our customers and clients and prospects. Um, the three basic things, one, you need the staff, the local talent in general to service those local markets. Yeah. Um, some businesses obviously can deliver products and services without having boots on the ground, but many actually do require local leaders and executives and staff to help deliver that product or service. So obviously talent, hiring local talent, Right. Um, second thing is, you know, the content to support those markets. And with content, I mean it very broadly, whether it's marketing literature and collateral to grab a people's atten- attention to your product or service, whether it's supporting sales collateral and material to help your sales staff close the deal with a customer, or whether it's support material, meaning once they become a customer of yours, how do you make sure they can understand and read what it is to use your service or troubleshoot your product or what have you. Okay. So you need that as well. And finally, you probably need a supply chain to deliver your good or service to that market, right? Yep. My company you know, is the lucky in the sense that we're a SaaS product, so the internet takes care of that for us. But for those that aren't SaaS products, which are the vast majority of the world, um, having a way to deliver your local or your good to that local market is obviously critical to the supply chain. So those are three kind of large umbrella topics that we talk with our clients about. 
so companies um, companies that are that are working internationally why what is the biggest problem they face is it is it language well I mean providing very well providing the local um, a market actually wants or needs the product that that, that, that there's not a um, um, a gap there mm-hmm. so yeah I would say it really does boil down to language in the sense that either you know whether it's in your ability to communicate to this prospect or customer about your good or service or whether it's to house them consume information about it themselves or how to use it I mean without them understanding how to, to engage with your product or service from a pure language perspective, you're, you're really kind of not getting out of the gates with that um, customer or prospect. Um, so the way we look at this is we say, hey, look, the critical thing is, you know, is your product or service that you're delivering truly able to service users in different languages and locales around the globe? I mean, is it really just translated or localized to be able to do that? Um, is it culturally appropriate? Oftentimes, you know, there's things or about giving good or service or the way you want to communicate about it that might not be culturally appropriate from one market to the next. And, and you basically have to know how to chart those waters. Um, and then finally, are you able to support these people across the globe? And by support, I mean, you know, are, if that person has an issue with your good or service and they need help, can you support them either in the language that they're speaking or in the time zone that they're living in. And that's critical to keeping customers happy, keeping them buying more of your product or service or that happens to be the market you're in. So, culturally appropriate is very important. I'm, I'm involved with a company, a startup that's um, uh, launching through Latin America, and uh, cultural differences, whether you're in um, Brazil or Argentina or Colombia or wherever you are, they're so different. And and uh, unless you are a local. There's so many just small things that can throw you, just turns of phrase that can, um, instead of getting somebody motivated, get somebody totally pissed off. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So... Yeah, we've we've come through many examples, sometimes funny and tragically funny with some of the... True. (laughs) Yeah, so a a company like like yours, um, you, you look at the translation angle from from what I understand. What about the culturally appropriate part of that equation? Is that left to the local boots on the ground? Well, it's, there's, there's a couple of people that are involved um, in this to make sure it's culturally or locally appropriate and relevant. Um, first and foremost is, you know, if you're engaging with a third-party translation company, a translation agency or vendor, whatever yep. you want to call it, which mm-hmm. the vast majority of businesses do because that's the way you can get your content translated at scale and at volumes and at the quality you need. And so those companies, um, the good ones, at the very least, the good ones, uh, will help you, uh, will help work with you and understand, okay, is this, you know, Portuguese in Portugal or Brazilian Portuguese and what market and what's, you know, what's the local customs? And th- they can provide some help and expertise when they're translating and localizing that content. So finding a good provider of translation services who has local market expertise 
in the individual regions that you're doing business with is a critical step in making sure you address that the right way. And two, yes, getting your input and feedback from the local boots on the ground, your local staff, having sure or making sure they get their eyes on this content in some way, shape or form before it goes out to market is always a good thing. Sometimes the volume of the content, it's not really realistic to get everything kind of spot checked. So yep. there's actually ways you can actually have things created by local um, uh, local boots, things called style guides or glossaries that they can communicate to the translators you're working with what the right cultural terminology is or the way to phrase things for your particular market or your particular good or service. So there's an ecosystem involved and you know our software helps actually quarterback all these people to make sure that these types of things are addressed. A few years ago, I was um, involved with uh, the launch of a product for Coca-Cola in um, in Thailand, and you, it was quite it was quite a well-known story. And I won't go into it because it's not not appropriate, really. Um, but um, and we were forced to launch a product in Thailand by Coke because that's the way we do it, and that's the way we've done it all over the world, and that's the way we're going to bloody well do it in Thailand. And it ended up a disaster, and it was on the shelf about a week and a half before it came down. Um, how often does that happen? That um, particularly with with companies that are big and arrogant, I guess is the word. How often do companies um, go in and say, "Well, it's my way or the highway," and, and don't listen? Well, I, I, it probably happens more than you would think or want to believe, or, or maybe it does happen as, as often as you'd think in the sense that often, you know, there's kind of, there's always a time pressure. There's a rush to get something to market. Yeah. There's always the next quarter. There's next, there's, there's, there's earnings every, every quarter, right? And so invariably that time pressure sometimes leads to people to try to kind of short circuit some of the, the tried and true process to enter our market, yeah. which is obviously engaging with experts doing diligence on how to take a product to market, what the messaging should be, what the brand should appear as. And that takes time. It takes money. And so often what will happen is to meet time pressures, companies will say, Hey, look, we, we did this pretty successfully in 10 different countries. Why would it be any different? So let's just go. And yeah, that'll work sometimes, but inevitably, as you point to the Coca-Cola example, sometimes it can backfire in a major, major way. And so we advise companies, Hey, look, try to take a step back, think about entering a market, think about translation and localizing, excuse me, localizing your content as a strategic priority that you need to give top tier, you know, attention to. And, um, you know, often, obviously that, that, that resonates very well. So if, if you're going to, if you're a company and you're about to launch in a, uh, an, in another country, um, what's the sort of blueprint that you should follow to be able to, to go about doing that successfully? I mean, we just... Sure. Yeah, I can kind of, I guess, there's several kind of tips or tricks that we advise every client to kind of you know, consider before doing that. Um, kind of first one, and, you know, we say, hey, look, this is 2015. I think Thomas said almost 11 years ago, the world is flat. Um, <laughs> you need the technology to help you do this. Thinking you can do this kind of on your own, you know, on the back of an envelope or something is just not the way the modern world works. So find a technology platform to help you build and manage a global content operation across your enterprise and one that can scale as success arrives. Right. Obviously, 
that's what Cloudwords does. So we're a little biased in giving that piece of advice, but whether it's Cloudwords or something, have technology help you here. Two, um, I mentioned a little bit about this earlier, find a trusted translation services company, actually find multiple. And um, that's critical because there really is no one side of fits all translation agency or partner. A lot of them claim to be often it's not correct because different agencies specialize in either different markets, different types of content, different channels of content, and you also right. want redundancy. So get, make sure that you, ha- you can identify and partner with several agencies that specialize in get different uh, markets or regions or your product or service. Three, um, identify all the key players in this content operation, this global content operation. From the content creators who are authoring the original content, what content systems, you know, are they using a market automation system, a web platform, where is the content being authored in, what integration points do you need to hook into those content systems to get the content in and or out and back in in a multilingual way, then who are the bilingual reviewers, who are the experts that might look at the content, who are aware of your company's brand and product and names and so forth, identify them, and then identify the quarterbacks who's going to manage this whole global content operation, who's going to work with the technology platform you choose, who's going to make sure it's getting adopted. Doing that, finding that team is critical to ensuring success. Uh, Four, get buy-in from executive management. Um, You know, often that seems obvious, but I think sitting down with executive management and saying, hey, look, entering global markets, creating a global content operation is a strategic advantage for our company. And if we do it well and we do it efficiently and we do it quickly, it'll be a competitive advantage versus our competitors maybe who aren't doing it as efficiently as we are. And pitch to that executive management, this has real revenue generating impacts. If we can get our message out there faster, quicker, more crisply, yep. uh, it will generate more leads. It'll generate more business. It'll create happier customers. There's real top line and, business, and top business um, uh, objectives that can be served by uh, doing this the right way. And five, think all inclusive from day one. And what I mean by that is, start from a position of every market should get this message at the same time. Right. Don should be the world where you say, hey, we'll, we'll service EMEA and we'll service the, in North America. Sorry, APAC, you're going to get this six months later. Why? Why throttle your sales or your marketing efforts in those markets and, and throttle your results? So if you think from day one, start with the premise of everything has to be ready at the same time, you'll build that into your project plans. You'll staff your, your, yourself appropriately. It'll become a self-fulfilling prophecy if you build that into your DNA. So would, would I be right in assuming? I know when we went, um, we started in Brazil and we're rolling out, but um, translation wasn't one of the topics that came up in our initial planning. You know, sitting mm-hmm. in the United States planning, how you go to conquer Brazil or Argentina or whatever. Um, translation wasn't, and, and local customs wasn't really one of our early considerations. Would I be right in suggesting that that's the same situation for many companies that, that expand internationally? That Well, um, definitely for some. Uh, I think the world is changing, meaning, you know, as I referenced Thomas Friedman saying 11 years ago, the world is flat. I think more and more companies are understanding that now. Um, still, yes, some are making mistakes as considering translation as, as an afterthought or something that's to be done later. But especially on the marketing side, you know, if you want to get your message across yeah. in, a, in an efficient manner, you can't begin to think that's going to be done well 
if you're not presenting that information in the native or preferred tongue of who you're speaking to. I mean, there's the topic of personalization and marketing today. You want personalized content and it's completely valid. Well, the way we look at it is the first step in personalization is you better present that information in the local language that person uses or else (laughs) nothing else makes sense. Sure. And so I was thinking of, I was thinking of it more in the terms of um, not necessarily just getting a direct translation of of the words, but um, Mm -hmm. being able to uh, take into account the nuances and and uh, local customs and that sort of thing. It's that because that that seems to me that that's all got to be done by the guys on the ground. Right. Again, this gets back to kind of the earlier point of, you know, you're absolutely right. That is critical. Just translating the words from A to B is, is, is just the first step in this localization process. The second piece of this puzzle is you got to make sure it's being localized to local customers you talked about. And often that is also forgotten, right? Because again, it takes time, it takes energy. But again, if you want to maximize results, you need to get your local boots on the ground, your translation agency partners to take this seriously and make sure that, hey, we're going to involve the local boots. We're going to make sure they're aware this is a key part of their role for the company. And we're going to make sure we engage with the best of breed translation vendors who have local market experience and can yeah. help advise in this as well. Yes. I guess this is where your local agencies and PR companies come into, into play because um, so often we'll say, well, this is really important. And they'll say, that. well, that might be important in California. It's not worth anything down here. You know, we... Exactly. We don't care about that. Um, so, what's the biggest issues that that companies in global marketing in global markets are facing? What are the major issues that they're facing? Well, I mean, you know, it, it's kind of the same story everywhere. You got to find great talent. I mean, if you want to execute well in, in local markets, um, hiring local talent to help that effort is is critical. And as anything, hiring great talent's hard. Um, you know, great people are in, in high demand. And so staffing appropriately, whether it's the, the boots on the ground or the executive staff for that given market or region, is a big challenge that companies face. Um, you know, two, uh, again, I'll harp on this content message. Are you really ready to support that market um, with all the content needed to make your operation and your customers successful? Um, you know, getting that content and get, keeping it up to date and making sure the new content you're using the market is constantly flowing into all the regions around the world you do business is a big challenge. And three, you know, understanding kind of local laws and regulation that are different from your home market is critically important. <laughs> the last thing you want to do is run afoul of the authorities. <laughs> it's a bloody nightmare too. Jeez. Right. And so, exactly. And so you got to take that very seriously and it takes obviously some serious consultation with you know, local legal representatives and, and, and counsel that can help you navigate and chart those waters. So those are kind of the big three to us, you know, talent, um, you know, supporting the content, the supporting content and making sure you're not running afoul of local laws and regulations. Three right. biggest challenges. Talk to me about translation memory software. Um, I mean, the, the big guys, sure. can, big guys can obviously um, have got the money to do well, go any which way they want with translation services, but um, how does translation memory software work, and how does that take into account the, the, the context of the work that you're talking about, the work that you're, that's being translated? How does that work? Sure. So um, just to clarify, there's two kind of concepts that we're ta- we could talk about. There's 
machine translation, which is literally when you a service like Google Translate or Microsoft yeah. Bing that translates yeah. the stuff as a computer. Translation yeah. memory is a separate and distinct concept. Really, really all it is is a fancy word for a database or a repository of all the content you've already paid to have translated. It's already, it's, a, it, it's stored in such a manner so that inevitably when you make an update to your website page or that piece of marketing collateral or that right. FAQ, what have you, you're not rewriting everything from scratch. You're, you're changing maybe 10%, 20%, a couple of sentences here, paragraph there. So translation memory helps you detect, hey, only 10% of this actually changed. Therefore, let's make sure we only have to pay and wait for that 10% to get translated. And the 90% that hasn't gotten touched, no one's gonna translate that all over again. No one's, and therefore we don't have to pay for it, or better, better yet, we don't have to wait for it to get relocalized. So really, it's just about detecting the changes and making sure only the deltas are translated. And any company can benefit from this, whether you're literally a Microsoft or you're a startup just getting started internationally, the concept of building a translation memory database and utilizing it can have dramatic impacts on reducing your costs and the time to localize your content. So is the, is the um, translation memory spe- specific to your company or is, does it take into account um, a whole range of companies that, that might be in a particular um, language area and sort through all of that or is it, is it only material that you've actually put in yourself? Well, it could be both and, and we advise to customers that they use both and what I mean by that is you should always build a translation memory database that's just specific to your company, meaning the content you've already previously localized or translated right. um, in the past and that should be considered the first class citizen whenever you're using translation memory to help you. Now, some companies choose to say, hey, look, there is some overlap within the vertical or industry and the language people use to describe things and so forth. And so often as a next step in that process, they can apply that translation memory. And that you have to be, have this, obviously have to be careful and make sure you're having it reviewed by a local language expert to make sure that it actually picks up the right nuances and culturally appropriate uh, meanings and so forth for your product or service. So you, should do, you can do both, but absolutely you should have a company-specific translation memory database. Okay, you've been involved in two, I guess, startups, if you like. Um, mm-hmm. What's the biggest obstacle that you've faced in either of those companies, or was there any obstacle that was common to both? And how did you go about um, addressing that? Sure. Um, you know, I started Salesforce.com very early. I was, I think, the seventh uh, engineer on staff. And obviously, I you know uh, founded CloudWord, so started day one of the, that company. And the, the thing that was common between both was the extreme need to focus. And you know, when when you're getting something up and running, when you're scrapping to get that next dollar of business, often you try to do way too many things because you feel that's the only way to be successful. To try to do everything, and inevitably, that leads to you probably doing many all things, <laughs> suboptimally yeah. or poorly. And it's the challenge of focus in the sense that, and it's an easy thing to say, what's well, focus? But the challenge of focusing is knowing what the right thing to focus is and being at peace with, I might not make the right call here because I got to, of the 10 things I have to do, I'm only going to choose to do three. And I have to acknowledge that I might not pick the, the, the top three, but 
still trying, if, if, if the alternative is trying to do all 10, I'm still, I'm going to guarantee myself to fail there. So it's focus and it's being educated in the guesses you're making about what are the right areas to focus on. Cause it's all about limited time and limited resources in a small company and time is your biggest enemy. So how do I'm a, I'm a new startup. How do I, I've, I've got to get, um, and I've got my idea and I understand, you know, when I'm partly, that's partly developed. Now I know I need money and I need talent. I need to get some talent around me. How do you attract, when you haven't got a lot of money, how do you attract good talent in a market where, you know, for example, the competition for talent here in LA at the moment is ferocious and, uh, you know, if you're if you're really good um, engineer or something, you can almost write your own ticket. Um, and I read somewhere that that a startup in LA was giving away cars to to sign up engineers. <laughs> so, how, if you're if you're a little guy, how do you how do you cope with that? Bearing in mind that if you don't have great talent, you know, you're going to become one of the ninety seven percent that fail. <laughs> I mean, to be perfectly blunt and honest, there's no easy answer there. And you just got to kind of grin and bear it. Um, it is a risk. It is, in my opinion, the biggest risk about getting the company off the ground is finding that great talent who's willing to believe in you and your idea. Um, and that's why, you know, at all phases of the company, and especially on day one, recruiting is a huge part of the entrepreneur's job. It is sometimes the only part of the entrepreneur's job is trying to find that great talent because it's yeah. hard. There's you know, huge competition. You know, the Bay Area is equally as absurd as Los Angeles in terms of the, the talent wars. And so, honestly, there's no easy answer. It's just hard work, and, and you got to grind it out, for lack of a better way of putting it. So how do you convince... Um, you know, I'm one of those people, rightly or wrongly, who believes that um, um, burn rate really doesn't matter. It's speed to... Mar- I'm not saying be frivolous and go out and do anything ridiculous but burn rate um, is nowhere near as important as speed to market usually and um, you're better off paying for really good talent if you can convince a a VC or an angel to give you the money Um, do you think angels are changing in their attitude to to burn rate and actually spending to hire the best people Um, no I don't think I don't think anybody um disagrees that hiring the best people is is the biggest asset and and you know potentiator of future growth for a company. So I think from the VC to the entrepreneur, both sides of the table agree investing and paying you know, good money for great talent is is absolutely okay. Um, I think there's been a bit of a expectation that companies now should be able to manage their burn better in the sense that you know there's so many tools and technologies, there's so much data to draw on about you know proper spending ratios or how you're spending your dollars and you know, what, what successful companies have done that there's an expectation that you manage your cash better. Now that doesn't mean you don't burn because you're right to, to, to grow. You've got to burn cash and hire great people and hire a lot of them, but you better be doing it in a reasonable, um, you know, cost effective manner and relative to your peers. And there's a lot of data out there to help guide the entrepreneur about where those kind of lanes are um, that they can stay within. Yeah. Okay. Um, who is the um, the entrepreneur that you admire the most? Well, I mean, you know, you got to take a look at a guy like Elon Musk, and yeah. what I love 
him is just the variety of what he's done. And, you know, it's tr- it's clear the guy is no one-trick pony. And That's it's for sure. amazing. <laughs> it's amazing to see him be able to succeed in wildly different markets with wildly different products and services. And I think it takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of self-assurance to think, I know nothing about building space shuttles, but guess yeah. what? I, I, I'm going to go for it because that's what my passion is driving me to. And um, I think he's inspiring. I think he's a guy everybody should be looking out to and, and, and trying to emulate. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, I saw an interview with him where he said, um, I didn't know anything about building space uh, rockets and spacecraft, but I decided that that's what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to hire anybody from NASA because, um, you know, they've already got set in their ways. So I wanted to get people to start from scratch. Jeez. That's a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> that is a big ask. And, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So... Entrepreneurs, are entrepreneurs born or are they made? Uh, I think both. I mean, I'm I'm a big believer of it's both nature and nurture. And I think there's got to be some probably DNA in you that allows you to take what is almost by definition an irrational risk. I mean, the numbers of startup failures are absurdly daunting and nobody would ever kind of put a bet on that in Vegas. So it takes a little irrationality. (laughs) Um, So I think that you need to have that, but also you're made in the sense that, you know, from the people that you work with to the skills you acquire to the success or failures of your past that drive you to do something, you know, know, startups aren't made in in successful by just a single entrepreneur or the founding team. It's, 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 it takes a village and the experience and the professional networks you gain over your career before launching that initiative is equally a part of being able to do it in the first place and having confidence you can do it in the first place and then succeeding. So I think it's both. Yeah. You have to be a little bit crazy, don't you, to, to sit there and say, now, well, I take a job with the government where I'm going to get, I'll start at 50 and I'll end up getting 150, but I'll be paid every week and I won't have to worry. Or... I'll go out and I'll take this on and there's a 97% chance that I'll go broke and owe heaps of money and, you know, never have a girl that'll live with me and live in a tent for the rest of my life. I mean, that's a that's a bloody big choice, isn't it? You have to... Yeah, I'd say that. And if you're like me, if you have to have an understanding spouse because when I came home, yes. I said, hey, you, you know that nine-month-old daughter we have? Well, I'm going to take my nice, you know, safe job at salesforce.com and go to zero and uh, you support that right and so obviously it takes a, a great partner to, uh, to be part of that journey too yeah that's true that is absolutely critical Scott thanks very much for being on the Bob Pritchard radio show on Voice America Business now to find out more about how to better manage your global communication and to find out more about Scott go to cloudwords.com that's C-L-O-U-D-W-R O-R-D-S dot com. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on the Voice America Business Network, and I'll be back with you right after this short break. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. 
That's Bob at BobPritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit radio show. Coming to you this week from Mountain View in Silicon Valley. Lovely spot, lovely day. One of the keys to being successful in business or in a personal endeavor, such as becoming a successful athlete, for example, is setting goals. But when you or your company set goals, how do you go about achieving them? I mean, it's a bit like um, New Year's Eve, isn't it? We've come up with a, with a goal. Our goal is to do whatever, and 99% of people don't do it. So what do we need to do to make sure that we can achieve goals? So let me tell you 12 elements that will enable us to meet our goals and anyone who, and anyone who, if you don't 100% enthusiastically embrace every one of these keys, there's 12 of them. If you don't embrace all of them, you will be very unlikely to meet them. Depends on the goal, of course, but any worthwhile goal takes work. So key number one, is to have a focused work ethic. So part of this is um, it's working hard, taking the initiative, you know, doing more than you're required to do, you know, going that extra mile. And the other part is working smart. Anybody can work hard and not succeed. The key is to work smart. The second key is for you to take operational leadership. So you need to have a really clear vision about what needs to be done, and then you need to marshal the resources to do it. So once you've got everything you need to to achieve what you want to achieve, then you have to get off your ass and go and do it. And to most people, that's the hard part. The third key is to take a strategic view rather than a tactical view. You know, the strategy that we determine drives tactics. And if our strategy is flawed, well, the quality of the tactics doesn't matter, does it? So you'll not achieve your goals. So people who get ahead the fastest and apparently the easiest, they just seem to naturally understand that you need a strategic view. The fourth key to achieving your goals is to be able to zoom in on a problem to figure out the root cause and then zoom out to be able to look at all the possible solutions. Now, this takes knowledge, a keen business understanding, and the guts to question yourself. You know, if you set the strategy, it takes guts to sit there and say, hmm, well, maybe that's not right. You know, it's very easy to blame something else as the reason for failure. One of the, um, I think one of the reasons that I've been moderately successful in my life is because I can walk into a company, um, into a business that I've never been in before, and sit down and talk to people for half a day or whatever and then 
almost instantly determine what their problems are. And that's just being able to have a helicopter view, spot the problems, hone in, and then come up with simple ways to solve those problems. I mean, it's, it's really not rocket science. It's um, just knowledge and discipline. The fifth key to achieving goals is to develop multifunctional thinking. You know, the best people can see beyond um, requirements to balance the needs of growth, you know, sales and marketing and product development versus operational efficiency, things like operations, engineering, IT, HR, finance and accounting. You know, the, the key is to, to have that multifunctional thinking because being successful and achieving your goals is about getting all of those things right. The sixth key to achieving your goals is persistence. There are a number of studies that, that show that most deals are closed after they've been presented eight times, and yet most salespeople give up after two times. So your mantra must be never quit, never give up. The seventh key to achieving your goals is the ability to influence. You have to be able to influence people around you, pull them around to your point of view, get them to be willing to enthusiastically participate. The eighth key is to be proactive. You've got to anticipate issues before they become a problem. And then you need to take really strong action to address them in a logical and business-like way. So be proactive. The ninth key is to be able to leverage your team and resources. This is all about efficiency, achieving more with less, figuring out how to avoid or overcome unnecessarily obstacles unnecessary obstacles, getting your team to give more than they would normally give or normally expect to give. The 10th key comes down to your organisational skills, whether you're an individual contributor or part of a team or maybe you're running the team. The best people can organise the resources to deliver the results on time, on budget, consistently. The 11th key to achieving your goals is to be responsible and totally committed You've got to, when you say you're going to do something, do it. And when things go wrong, don't make excuses or blame others. Cop it on the chin, go do it. The 12th key is the ability to select and develop the right people. If you don't get the absolute best people, you'll have a second-rate performance. A-team leaders don't compromise on who they hire. They hire the A-team. Now, if you're a regular listener to the show and you're benefiting from the advice that my guests and I give you each week, please tell your friends to listen. Go to my website at bobpritchard.com and subscribe to my monthly newsletter. Send in your questions, email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and follow me on Twitter, Facebook and become a contact of mine on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to The Bob Pritchard absolutely no bullshit business radio show for entrepreneurs coming to you from Mountain View. And remember, it's much easier to do the impossible than to do the ordinary. This is Bob Pritchard, and I hope you have an absolutely fantastic week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. 
Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life. We'll be right back. 